Well, if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to uh, Matthew chapter 12. We're going to look at the first eight verses of Matthew 12 this morning. And so I'm going to go ahead and just read our passage and then we'll, we'll dive in. It says, at this time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to them, look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. And he said to them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat or for those who were with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law on how the Sabbath, the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here, and if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. So as we've been making our way through Matthew, the last uh, passage that, that Pastor Brent uh, brought to us uh, was was a little bit of a I think he called it a sour patch passage or something like that 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 you know not not a passage uh, in some respects that gives us great comfort in uh, Jesus talking about uh, woe to the unrepentant cities right uh, and kind of giving the bad news and, and I've, I've said many times over the years that if the the good news isn't that good if the bad news isn't that bad. And so kind of two, two sides of a coin, we have the good news of the gospel, but we, we have the bad news that makes the good news so good, right? And, and so in last week's passage, Jesus was talking about those who are unrepentant and denouncing the unrepentant cities where he had been doing great works and had been healing people. Um, and uh, he basically said, woe, woe to them. But then comes the good news that, that we can come to him and that he will give us rest. All those that are, have burdens and are heavy laden, that we can come to Christ. And, and so we have the bad news, but we have the good news. But our passage today starts out saying, at that time. So in other words, as all of this was unfolding, as Jesus was delivering a dose of bad news and a dose of the good news, here you have the Pharisees. Um, Jesus had just gotten done talking about unrepentance. And then the Pharisees immediately pounce on Jesus and say, look at this thing that your disciples are doing, right? We, we, we got to, we love the Pharisees because, um, you know, they, they, they just miss things. Things go over their head all the time with what Jesus said. And so rather than taking to heart the message of woe to those who are unrepentant and that those who are burdened and heavy laden can come to Christ, the Pharisees completely missed that message and they see Jesus walking through the grain fields on the Sabbath. And they immediately point out something uh, according to Sabbath law that was wrong that Jesus and his disciples were doing. Now, I don't think that this passage today is primarily about the Sabbath. We are going to talk about the Sabbath, um, but the primary point of this passage, I don't think is the Sabbath. I think there's a bigger point that Jesus is trying to make here that hopefully by the time we get to the end, we'll see uh, the bigger point uh, aside from the Sabbath. So Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, we're told, uh, and they began to pluck heads of grain to eat. Not a big deal, right? It seems like a relatively minor thing, but it says when the Pharisees saw it, and, and so to me, it kind of begs the question, well, how did they see it? 
They were following along, waiting for their moment, waiting for their moment to point a finger, right? This is kind of typical behavior of the Pharisees, not, not taking Jesus' message to heart for themselves, but waiting to point the finger. And then that moment came. So it would seem that in this moment, the Pharisees completely missed Jesus' call to repentance completely. Not only do they miss his call to repentance, they missed his call to bring their burdens and their heavy ladenness to him. It would appear rather than following Jesus, they were watching his every move, trying to catch him in an act of doing something wrong. And so they pointed the finger and they said, look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. Now, in order to set the scene here, we do have to talk a little bit about the Sabbath and what it is and why this was a big deal. Um, We we don't observe the Sabbath today like uh, the Jews of Jesus' day and even before Jesus' day observed the Sabbath. And so the Sabbath was pretty central to the Jewish faith. As a matter of fact, uh, it's in one of the Ten Commandments. It's the fourth commandment in Exodus 20, starting in verse 8. It says this, it says, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all of your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God, or a rest to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy." Now, this, was, this is a simple commandment. There's nothing here really that's, that's ambiguous, right? We're just told, work six days and rest one. God has given us for human flourishing a rhythm of work and rest, right? And it's for our good. Uh, and not only is it for our good, but it follows in the example of God himself who created the heavens and the earth and everything that exists in six days and rested on the seventh. And so if God rested on the seventh, uh, God who is sovereign and all-knowing and almighty and all-powerful, how much more do us humans who are not all-knowing and not almighty and not all-powerful, not all-capable, how much more do we need to engage in this rhythm of work and rest? So this is a commandment given to us for our good and for our flourishing. Now, after the Ten Commandments came, The Israelites, over time, would keep adding to these commandments and expanding on the commandments. And so there came a point where there were over 600 laws in the Jewish law of things that you had to do. And as it relates to the Sabbath, there were 39 rules that were attached to this fourth commandment. Again, the fourth commandment's not ambiguous. Work, rest, right? Work six days, rest one. Pretty pretty simple. On that seventh day, don't do any work, don't have anyone in your household work. If you have a guest with you, don't make them work. Rest on the seventh day. But the Jews made 39 rigid rules and created a burden as it pertained to the Sabbath. And just to give you a couple of examples, one commentator notes that traveling and carrying loads were excluded on the Sabbath. But people were allowed to travel what was called a Sabbath day's walk, which was 100 meters or 1,100 meters. That, that, you could travel 1,100 meters. And I don't know how back then they measured all of these things, but you could travel that amount. But you couldn't carry anything. You couldn't have a, a sack or a backpack or anything like that because that was, that was work to do that. So a Sabbath day's walk, 1,100 meters. But if you had food 
stored at 1,100 meters, food was considered part of your home. And so if you went 1,100 meters and you had some of your own food there, you could go another 1,100 meters. They they took God's unambiguous command for their good and for their flourishing and just made it about a bunch of rules. Another extreme is that in the Maccabean revolt recorded in history, uh, there were several groups of Jewish people that were slaughtered because they wouldn't fight to defend themselves on a Sabbath day. And their enemies knew it. And so they strategically attacked on the Sabbath day knowing that, that the Jewish people would just lay down and, and not even fight to defend themselves. I don't know that that's what God had in mind when he gave that fourth commandment. According to another commentator, plucking grain was considered reaping. Just, just picking a handful of grain that was considered reaping, which was considered work. Rubbing it to separate the grain from the husks Luke's account tells us that they did this. That was considered threshing, which was also considered work. And then blowing away the husks out of their hand was interpreted as winnowing, also considered as work. And for good measure, it says that they would have seen the whole preparation of food in all of this, plucking and separating and blowing it away, uh, which was also prohibited. One of the rules that the Jews came up with, it was prohibited on the Sabbath. Typically in Jewish culture, food that was eaten on the Sabbath was prepared the day before, right? And, And so they took this unambiguous command and just made it really, really difficult, and put a lot of rules to it to follow. Uh, and again, missing the point of why God gave this to us. God gave us the Sabbath for our own good. I don't know how many of you have ever, um, you know, worked through a weekend. Maybe you work seven days. How do you feel at the end of seven days? Maybe some of you have had jobs where you've worked, you know, weeks in a row without a day off. It's not good for us, is it? It's not good. And rarely do we work seven days, 10 days, two weeks in a row, rarely do we ever get to the end of that period and think, oh man, I'm glad I did that, <laughs> right? It, because it's, it's a burden. We're not built for it. <clears throat> God has designed humans to have a rhythm of work and rest. And I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but our resting, our ability to take a day off, our ability to set work aside for the Christian really is an act of faith in God. I don't know if you've considered rest to be that. When you lay your head on the pillow and sleep, it's an act of faith. It can be an act of faith for the Christian knowing the world's going to continue while I'm sleeping and God's got it under control. And so I can sleep at night in faith, trusting that the world doesn't need me out there trying to order it. That's God's work, not my work. And so our rhythm of work and rest for the Christian, exercising Sabbath rest, is an act of faith that we do. It's an act of trust in God, knowing that even though I have work to do, right? I don't know how you, it seems like the list never ends, does it? We've always got more that can be done. But setting the list aside for a day, per the fourth commandment, is an act of faith in God, trusting that God's going to give me what I need to do my work just like God's going to give me what I need to engage in rest. And the rest is good for us. And the Pharisees missed the point. The Jews missed the point of the fourth commandment. They missed the point that this is God's gift to us for human flourishing. And as they did with all of the commandments, they made just a whole bunch of rigid rules that that you had to memorize. You had to be responsible to know these 600 plus laws 
you know, 611 or 613. You had to know all of these and you had to observe all of these. That in and of itself uh, was a burden, let alone adhering to all of them. And so, so this, was, this, was, this was the Jewish Sabbath. It, it was central to the life of the Israelite. And so given all of that, you can see the Pharisees, why, why they were ready to pounce on Jesus, right? They, they didn't like Jesus. They didn't like his message. They didn't like what he was doing. And in true form, they were always looking for these opportunities to point the finger at Jesus. And so this was an opportunity where they could point the finger and say, your disciples, it doesn't matter that they were hungry. And we don't, I don't know, you know, the Bible says they were hungry. I don't know if they were starving. I don't, I don't know when they last ate. We don't know if this was, you know, they just need a snack or were they just like legit in need of food. Don't know. We don't have that detail of the story. But the Pharisees pounced when they had the moment. And so then Jesus replies to them in verse 3 and says, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? And Jesus, when, when Jesus asks the question, it's never because he lacks the answer, right? Jesus' questions are always leading questions. He always asks the question knowing full well what the answer is to the question, right? He's not asking the question for his benefit. And when he says, have you not read, basically he's, he's acknowledging that he knows that they would have read. He knows that they would have read the Torah. They would be familiar with what he's about to ask them. Right? So, so it's a bit of a trap on Jesus' part. Have you not read what David did? And every, everybody knows David, right? King David. King David, he was the gold standard of kings in the history of Israel. Everybody would have known David, and everybody would have known uh, the stories of David and been familiar. Probably growing up as, as a young Jew, you would have learned in, in history class all about King David, would have learned all about his life and everything that he did. And so Jesus really is making a statement more than he's asking a question here when he asks his question. And so his first question, he's making a historical argument, and this is a reference to 1 Samuel 21. We're not going to read it, but the short story is that David fled from Saul. You might remember the story between David and Saul. God had anointed David as a young boy to be king of Israel. The people chose Saul to be their king, and so as time would go by, there was conflict between David and Saul. Saul was threatened by David. And David was humble, trusting God for when he would take his rightful place as king. He didn't try to overthrow Saul or anything like that. But Saul was always after David. And so in 1 Samuel 21, David had to flee from Saul for fear of his life. And the priests allowed him into the temple to eat what otherwise was unlawful for him to eat. Right? There was the bread of the presence, they called it. And, and only priests could deal with this and only priests could partake in these rituals. But these priests allowed David to eat. In, in David's story, he was legit hungry. He was on the run and maybe had gone a long period of time without food, he and his men. And so he was allowed into the temple by the priests to do what otherwise would have been unlawful. And the shocking part of this story is that the priests and David and his men were not condemned for this act. History did not look back unkindly on that act. They were, they were not condemned for it. And here the Pharisees, uh, you know, later, you know, a thousand, couple thousand years later are bringing up this point as a gotcha kind of a moment. 
And then Jesus asks another question, or have you not read in the law on how on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath, but they're guiltless? And again, Jesus making more of a statement than he is asking a question because he doesn't lack the answer to this. He would know that the Pharisees would be well acquainted with the law, very well acquainted with the law. And the reality is that the priests worked on the Sabbath. They had to prepare the temple. Every Sabbath day, every, every, every Sabbath, they would prepare the temple. And nowhere in history does it ever record, Jesus says that the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath, and he's, he's using hyperbole to make a point here. Nowhere in history does it record the priests as profaning the temple because they work on the Sabbath. And so Jesus is making a couple of arguments here. He's making a historical argument, and he's making a legal argument. History looks back kindly on the situation with David and the priests. The law does not profane the priests who have to work on the Sabbath to prepare the temple. And so Jesus kind of turns the tables on the Pharisees, and it's more of a Jesus you know, has a gotcha moment with the Pharisees, right? They're not even adhering to their own law. Their own law allowed for exceptions to what was happening here. So again, this is why I think in part that this passage is about more than just the Sabbath. They're using the Sabbath as, as this sort of gotcha moment, but there's bigger things going on here. And so the Pharisees are not even adhering to their own law and not even allowing for the permitted exceptions that exist in their own law. And then... Unique to Mark's account of this passage, Matthew doesn't record this, but Mark's account of this passage in Mark 2.27 records that Jesus said to the Pharisees that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Earlier I said this passage is not primarily about the Sabbath, and Jesus is making a point in what he says in Mark's account. The Sabbath was made for mankind or humanity for our good, for our flourishing. God, knowing that uh, we need a healthy rhythm of work and rest. But it gets to the point of ridiculousness when you're pointing the finger at people who are just plucking grain to eat on the Sabbath. And all of these kind of ridiculous and rigid and burdensome rules that, that the Jews added to God's simple command. And as we come to the last couple of verses in our passage, I think this is where we see what this passage uh, really is all about. In verse 6, Jesus says of Matthew chapter 12, I tell you something greater than the temple is here. Now that's significant. We're told in John chapter 1, you might be familiar with the passage, that in the beginning was the Word, capital W, it's referring to Jesus. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and that all things were made, were made because of Him and through Him, right? And then John, in, in chapter 1, verse 14, tells us that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And when he talks about the Word becoming flesh and dwelling among us, this word dwelt is the same word that used in the Old Testament to refer to the tabernacle. So a little history lesson here. The tabernacle was before they had a permanent temple, they had a tent, basically. It was a portable temple that as they would go in their wanderings and they would stop in a place, they would set up the tabernacle or this portable temple, the tent. 
And it was just understood that the tabernacle is where God's presence was. And when John tells us that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, he's telling us that the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. That God, in the person of Jesus Christ, became flesh. God stepped into human flesh. And the presence of God then became among humanity, the humanity that God created. He dwelt among us. He tabernacled among us. And so when Jesus says in Matthew 12, 6, that something greater than the temple is here. So the tabernacle was good. The temple was great, right? And it was just when they built the temple, when they had the permanent structure of the temple, again, it was understood that that's where God was, was in the temple. The presence of God was in the temple. First in the tabernacle, second in the permanent temple. And Jesus is making a big statement in Matthew 12, 6, saying something greater than the temple is here. The tabernacle first and then the temple when it was built was central to the life of the Jew. Now, for some of you, you know, the church here is central to your life, but, but not in the way that it was for the Old Testament Jew. Life happened at the tabernacle and then the temple. It, it was an important part. Um, you, know, you, you, didn't, you didn't go play sports on a Sunday morning to miss out on, on the temple. You didn't do that back then, Right? Nothing in life was more important to the Jew of Jesus' day and, and even the Old Testament Jew than their involvement in temple life. And so Jesus saying that something greater than the temple is here, that's a big statement. Jesus is referring to himself. He's making a claim in saying something greater than the temple is here. He's going to make another big claim here in a moment, but that's, that's a big claim and I want to make sure that we didn't miss it. So that's one statement. He gives three, three, three statements here. The second statement is that if you had known what this means, and then he gives a statement, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. He says, if you known what that means, you would not have condemned the guiltless. Now, this word mercy, here, here's another kind of translation thing that it's important that we understand how this is translated. So the word mercy, you probably have a picture in your mind when you hear the word mercy. Oftentimes we describe mercy uh, as, as us not getting something bad that we rightfully deserve, namely God's judgment for the Christian, right? We, we don't get judgment as followers of Christ who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and that's God's mercy to the Christian. Um, you might think of mercy as uh, doing something kind uh, for somebody. Um, you know, our warming shelter might be considered uh, a mercy ministry, Right, that, that's a term that some churches use, a mercy ministry. But this word mercy in the Bible has a bigger meaning than just doing good deeds. The word mercy in the Bible talks about a loving kindness resulting from knowing God. So in other words, that, that the acts that we engage in other people and helping in and even giving things to people that they don't deserve and doing things for people that they don't deserve, it comes from knowing God. It comes from knowing that God loves us, knowing that God is kind to us, and then in a sense, paying it forward, right? Doing for others what God has done for us. That, that's mercy in the Bible, okay? And it's important that we understand that. And Jesus says, if you had understood this, if you had understood mercy, in other words, if you had understood the loving kindness that results from knowing God and how 
better that is than sacrifice. And what he means by sacrifice is that we, we can spend our lives in service to God in a sacrificial sort of a way. But it's got to be driven by this loving kindness resulting from knowing God. And if our sacrifice is not driven by that, if what we do for others is not driven by what God has done for us, then the Bible would say that doesn't, doesn't mean a whole lot. If you're doing for others in order to be seen, for example, if you do for others so that you get a pat on the back, that doesn't mean anything. If you do for others, even just to make yourself feel better so you can go to bed at night thinking, okay, I helped some people today. doesn't mean a whole lot. Where the rubber meets the road is that when we do for others because of what God has done for us, that's, that's what matters. This is what Jesus is saying here. And so he's talking to the Pharisees who are pointing out Jesus and his disciples breaking the law, not the law given by God, but the law that they created in addition to what was given by God. Right? These Pharisees are pointing out the misdeeds of others so that they can feel better about themselves. These Pharisees know the law inside and out, up and down, front and back. They, they know it. And Jesus is telling them that your knowledge of the law doesn't matter unless it's coming from a place of loving kindness, unless it's coming from a place of doing this because of what God has done for you. And so this is another way that they miss the boat. Theologian Grant Osborne says that the Pharisees have made two fatal errors. They have misinterpreted the law and they have refused to accept the reality of Christ as Messiah and Son of God. That's why Jesus makes this claim that something greater than the temple is here. And the Pharisees completely missed out on it. Osborne goes on to say that this idea, the two fatal flaws of the Pharisees, he said that this is the heart of the passage and that Jesus is the final authority. So when I said that this passage isn't primarily about the Sabbath, this is what I was driving at. I think this passage, even though things are unfolding on a Sabbath day and Sabbath is kind of central to the conflict that's here, the greater point of the passage is that the Pharisees missed Jesus. They missed Jesus. They didn't acknowledge who Jesus was. And that's what Jesus is calling them out on. And then in verse 8 of chapter 12 in Matthew, he says that the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath as his third statement. So something greater than the Sabbath is here. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. The Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. This is where, this is kind of the nail in the coffin here, this statement that the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Again, Jesus is making a pretty big statement here. He's making a statement of his deity. He's talking to people who are well-versed in the law, who follow the law. Probably The Pharisees followed the law probably better than most. Right? They, they sort of made a profession out of following the law. They were professional law followers or law keepers. And Jesus tells them, the Son of Man, in other words, himself, he's saying, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. Again, big statement. He's claiming deity. He's claiming 
to be God. He's claiming to be the one who gave us the fourth commandment, who gave us the rhythm of work and rest for our own good and for our own flourishing. And the Pharisees have completely missed it. And this isn't the first time in Matthew's gospel. There's been many times before this where Jesus has made claims of deity, claims of being God, and the Pharisees continue to miss it. They continue to miss it. Hardness of heart ultimately was the fatal flaw of the Pharisees. Religiosity was ultimately their fatal flaw. And we don't have time today to get into um, kind of law gospel distinctions. That's another conversation for another time. But the Bible does tell us how to live. The Bible does give us a prescription for life. The Bible gives us a prescription for flourishing as human beings, as created human beings who have a creator. The Bible tells us that if we live according to God's ways in the world that God created, it's just going to go better for us than if we live not according to God's ways in the world that God created for us, right? And so I would ask you to consider today um, just your own religiosity. We, we, We all have it. We, we all have a bent like the Pharisees to, to create rules. We just do. Even those of you who would say that you're somebody that's a rule breaker or doesn't follow the rules, you just have a different kind of rule, but you have rules. right? We all have this, this kind of religiosity type of a bent where, where we want to create rules. And we feel pretty good about our rules. When we can get to the end of a day and we can say, okay, I, I followed all of my own rules for today. I feel pretty good about myself. We like that. We get satisfaction from it. But, but I would ask you to consider, like the Pharisees, how is it that we miss God? How is it that we miss Christ in our religiosity? Right? There are times for all of us, I, you can probably relate to this, I just have times in my own life where you kind of know the right thing to do and there's this wrestle of like, I don't want to do the right thing and Maybe the right thing's hard, or maybe it comes at a cost, and there's this wrestle, like, oh, I know this is the right thing, but this would be the easier thing, right? We've got to, as Jesus pointed out, come to a point in our life where everything that we do in life comes from the place of what God has done for us. Right? We go to work to jobs that we don't necessarily like, and we work sometimes for employers who are not always the greatest. But for the Christian, we should put in an honest day's work, whether we like a job or not, whether we like our employer or not. Not because they deserve it, but because of who God is and because of what God has done for us. Right? As a Christian, you should be the best employee that your employer has, hands down. As a Christian, you ought to do more than what's expected of you as an employee. Maybe even you know, do things for your employer off the clock because of what God has done for us, because God has been gracious to us, then we're gracious to those around us. This is what Jesus is getting at in desiring mercy over sacrifice. And this is what the Pharisees missed. The Pharisees were so wrapped up in keeping the law, so wrapped up in following the rules that that was the lens that they looked at everything through. And they were quick to point out all of the rule breakers, not realizing that they themselves were also rule breakers, maybe just in a different way. 
And we all have that bent. We all have that tendency. In Hebrews chapter 4, it's a chapter where it talks about Jesus being our, our Sabbath rest. And the author of Hebrews says this in uh, Hebrews 4, chapter, uh, chapter 4, verse 6. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, in other words, some are going to come to Christ and some aren't, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Again, he appoints a certain day today, saying through David so long afterwards in the words already quoted that today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Again, the hardness of heart was an ultimate fatal flaw of the Pharisees. My encouragement to us today is that when we hear his voice, when we hear the words of God, when we read scripture, when we hear scripture preach, that we would not harden our hearts. That we would hear his voice, that we would listen to it, that we would receive it, and that we would obey it. That we would do what God tells us. That we would submit to the authority of Jesus, that we would submit to the authority of Scripture, and that we would to endeavor mercy over sacrifice. God, God doesn't care about our long list of things that we've done for Him. He just doesn't. But when we do things from the understanding, again, as I've already said, because of what Christ has done for me, then I'm free to do for others in similar fashion. That, that, that's where it matters. That's where it matters, and that's what the Pharisees missed. And so, um, in closing, I would just ask you to, to consider your own religiosity and that you would pray and ask God to open your eyes, to, that you would be able to see more and more as time goes on the truth of the gospel, the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that as you come into greater understanding of the gospel, that it would serve more and more as a motivator for you to live and to serve and to do for others because that's what Christ has done. Right? The Bible tells us that Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And again, this is where the Pharisees missed it. The Pharisees didn't serve anybody but themselves. But the true Christian, right, we, we live a life of service that's motivated from an understanding of the gospel because that's who Jesus is, and that's what Jesus did. Don't harden your heart as the Pharisees did. Don't make the fatal flaw of the Pharisees with religiosity and hardness of heart and completing a checklist, but endeavor to know Christ, to know what he's done more and more as time goes on, and to let that motivate uh, your life and the outworking of um, who Christ is and what he's done as you live. Father, we're thankful this morning. Um, thankful that you have given us uh, the Sabbath um, as a rhythm of work and rest for our own good and our own flourishment, and our own enjoyment. And I do pray that you would help us um, for our own good and for your glory uh, to observe uh, rest periods in our life as you've prescribed for us. But more than that, uh, Father, I pray that you would help us to understand the mercy that you've shown us you would help us to understand the grace that you've shown us, that you would help us to understand the love that you have for us. And that as we understand those things, that greater and greater as time would go on, that we would display those things in our own life in the way that we live, the way that we serve, and the way that we give uh, and do for others as a reflection of what you've done for us. 
And as always, Father, we pray that those things would cause people uh, to take notice, uh, not of us as individuals, but that it would cause people to take notice of Christ. Um, And that as we are out in the world called to be salt and light, that we would be uh, messengers of the gospel, that we would be doers of the gospel, that in the things that we say and in the things that we do, uh, that the gospel would be uh, prominent to those around us and that through those efforts you might bring some uh, to know you. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Pastor Shad, can I, can I, uh, can,